So hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of Mahogany and Friends. In today's episode, we're going to touch on a topic that is quite nuanced in the fashion and beauty industry, hair. More specifically, we will discuss the history of fashion in black hair and its role in high fashion. So with that said, let's talk. Our next guest is a writer, educator, and scholar with research interests in Black studies, performance studies, fashion studies, and art history. She runs the Instagram page Black Fashion Archive and research blog The Fashion and Race Syllabus, both of which are dedicated to archiving fashion and style across the Black diaspora and exploring the intersections of fashion and race, which expand upon and decentralizing fashion history. So, Please join me in welcoming Ricky Bird. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Hi, Ricky. How are you? I am okay, all things considered. Mm-hmm. There is a pandemic. There are Black yes. Lives Matter uprisings. Um, and so some days the world feels like it's falling apart. And some yeah. days things feel possible. And so I am keeping on, keeping on, as my mother and I keep saying to each other these days. Yes, no, that's definitely, I think, something that we've all been striving to keep doing as a collective, but I also want to honor your, you know, your feelings on both ends, and just let you know that we so appreciate you today for being here. Um, So, for those who don't know, I've had the honor of being in Miss Ricky's presence, (laughs) and she's been doing such amazing things um, since I've met her, and I'd love for everyone who doesn't know who you are, can you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about how you got your start in fashion and then later as a lecturer? Yeah. um, Again, they said my name already, but I'm Ricky, Mm -hmm. um, writer, (laughs) educator, scholar. Currently, I'm a PhD student in African-American studies at Northwestern University, um, where I'm continuing my research, which you all will hear me kind of talk about throughout the conversation. Um, But yeah, my start in fashion um, and as a lecturer is a bit... um, uh, personal and professional. So on the fashion side of things, my uh, I develop an interest in fashion because of the women in my life. And so um, my mother is a fashion designer back home in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, my grandmother uh, was not a formal um, seamstress or designer or anything but she really knew her way around needle and thread and so she would do everything from I attended kind of I attended private school and so my skirts were always too big or you know (laughs) I wanted to be cute so I wanted to shorten my skirts and so she would sew them up for me and she would also knit um, and crochet and then my great-grandmother who um, lived in Little Rock Arkansas was a quilter um and so watching those women throughout my life uh make things with their hands and have a love for textiles and have a love for adorning themselves um Mm -hmm. really rubbed off on me um and so I carried that with me and I continue to carry that with me as I conduct research on how black people um experiences and histories are shaped by fashion and style Mm-hmm. Um, on the academic or professional side, it really started in undergrad. Um, I pursued my degree in journalism with a minor in Black Studies at the University of Missouri. And in my senior year, I was enrolled in a 20th century African-American history course. Ooh, and the professor, yeah, the professor asked me to write 
uh, about anything that I wanted. And I was just like, that's <laughs> big. So open-ended. Um, yeah, that was very open-ended. Um, but it was an independent study course. So she was just like, I know you're just doing this for credit so you can graduate. It's your senior year. So just write about whatever. And so I wrote that paper about um, the emergence of Black models on the cover of mainstream publications, mm. uh, mainstream fashion publications. And no big deal. No big deal. <laughs> um, and it, it had to be 20th century focus, so it was between tw- 1966 and 1974. Um, she was a, like, true historian, so, like, they love dates. Um, so, like, that was kind of, like, the dates that I was working in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that paper, um, it was my term paper, and it kind of ended with me asking the question because I had to do this historical scaffolding. You know, originally mm-hmm. I signed the paper like, oh, this black model appeared on this cover, this date and this date and this date. My professor was like, okay, but what was happening um, uh, in the magazine industry? What was happening in uh, the black community during that time that right. might have sparked this appearance um, of black models on the cover of these magazines? And so in doing, doing all of that historical scaffolding, Um, I kind of ended that paper asking, are Black people a trend in the fashion industry? Because here I am kind of creating this historical arc. And Mm -hmm. I was writing the paper in 2013, so the year that I was graduating from undergrad, and realizing, okay, something clearly happened between 1974 Mm -hmm. and 2013, because here I am, a Black uh, girl, Black woman, interested in entering the magazine industry, but mm-hmm. there aren't many black models on the cover or black women on the cover of these right. um, publications anymore. So my professor was just like, you should go to graduate school. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, I pushed back heavily because I just had the, I had gotten a degree in journalism. I just really wanted to go into the magazine industry. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, and so I graduated. Those dreams did not manifest. I moved back home worked in the nonprofit sector for seven months, then worked at a local magazine. Um, And it was during that time that I started to realize these conversations around uh, cultural appropriation and diversity inclusion were starting to um, populate in popular media. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of unimpressed by these conversations because I had done that historical work. Right. Because I had ended that paper with that question. And so I was just very interested in what's about to happen now. and so that's what, then I said, okay, maybe my professor's right. I need to apply to grad school so I can, I can answer this question, right? So, <laughs> yes. Or at least I can explore this question. And so I applied to graduate school um, and was accepted and enrolled in Parsons School of uh, Design, Masters of Arts in Fashion Studies program, where you and I met, um, where yes. that's when you and I met. Yeah, so it was during my time at Parsons that I, um, a part of our graduate experience uh we had to uh be a teacher assistant Mm -hmm. um to the courses being taught at the school and so um yeah I was a teacher's assistant during my time there and really enjoyed it I really enjoyed teaching um I really enjoyed being in conversation with undergraduates I really enjoy um really being a part of um encouraging and empowering students to think critically about the intersection of fashion and race Mm -hmm. um, and fashion and culture. Um, And I also really enjoy doing research. Um, There was so much that I would find as I was going through media articles and archives 
and in conversations with people. Um, and I just knew that there was a lot to be done research wise. Mm -hmm. So um, I was just like, I think I want to pursue a career in academia. So I, um, after I graduated from Parsons, um, I was hired by Washington University in St. Louis mm -hmm. um, to be a lecturer in their art school. Um, and also I stayed there for two years. I'm teaching courses on fashion history and fashion and race. My second year, I was brought on by the African American Studies Department there um, to teach courses specific to Black history and fashion and style. And I loved it. I really loved it. And so I um, then applied to, uh, to get my doctorate's degree. And mm -hmm. so, um, as I mentioned, now I'm a PhD student um, in African American Studies at Northwestern. So that's my little my little arc. <laughs> yes, I love that. And you touched on a lot of gems there, right? I think the first one, it was the importance of like archives and like how mm -hmm. you use that as a tool, you know, to do your research. Can mm -hmm. you share a little bit more about what your process has been like conducting research or mm -hmm. why do you think it's important for us to, especially as a collective um, in the black diaspora, like to have archives and to hold, you know, hold value to that. You want to touch mm -hmm. a little bit mm -hmm. on that? Yeah, so the way that I do research is really all over the place, which I enjoy. <laughs> yes. um, I'm not a disciplined um, scholar or researcher by any means. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I mentioned my professor in undergrad was a historian, right? And so dates are important, um, historical moments are important, but I'm interested in kind of like, okay, how can I put that in conversation with what's happening right now? Or how can I put right. that in conversation with something that it wouldn't normally be put in conversation with, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so a big, uh, like a, a, the way that I usually start research is just paying attention to what's happening in the current moment. And so paying attention to social media, paying attention to those popular media conversations, again, going back to um, that moment I had after undergrad where I'm noticing, oh, these are conversations around cultural appropriation and diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. People are talking about it like it's new, right? And there's a history uh, that informs this conversation yes. um, that we can actually use to move forward, right? Um, and another part of my research is about making uh, fashion a serious area of study in the academy. Um, mm -hmm. I um, am very lucky to have graduated with a fashion studies um, degree, which is still an emerging field of study, um, but now me really knocking on the doors of African American studies, knocking on the doors of history, knocking on the doors of women and gender and sexuality studies, and saying, mm -hmm. hey, what happens when we actually use fashion as a lens to study things that we have studied before? What new do we, what new do we learn then? Right. Um, right? Um, and another aspect of my research is making sure that it's often um, as much as possible legible to a wide audience and is public facing. Um, I think that the academy suffers a great deal um, from having these journals that people, unless you're not in school, you can't access them, or um, even when you can access them, maybe um, uh, the, the language being, not the language, but uh, the vocabulary being used so on and so forth um, is daunting to some yes. people. And I also have a mother who always reminds me, I want to be able to read everything that you write. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, and she's, she's hard on me about it. And so I have to keep that in the back of my mind too. And I think that that kind of ethic informs the way that I do my work. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to, in doing the research that I do and the writing that I do, 
um, I come across a lot of resources and a lot of sources um, that sometimes I can't do anything with or sometimes actually aren't that interesting to me or sometimes I just don't have the capacity to actually dig into that thing. And so I'm always thinking about how can I share this thing, right? And so from there blooms um, my project um, that I continue to edit, such as the Fashion and Race Syllabus, which is just this repository of books, of journal articles, of video, um, you know, online videos um, that people can use. And not just people in the academy, people um, working in the magazine industry, people leading panel discussions, people doing podcasts. Um, here are all of the resources you need to actually inform your conversation. It's why I also started something like the Black Fashion Archive. I'm coming across images as I'm going through um, right. archives or online or whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, that's really not what my research is about right now, or I'm not interested in writing about that, but this is still interesting. And this right. is still something that people should know about. And so as simple as creating an Instagram page and putting those images up there and putting whatever information I can get um, up there. And what I am hoping to do with something like that is to start a larger conversation, right? right. Um, for example, I posted um, about um, uh, Kwame Brathwaite and mm -hmm. uh, the Grandasa model organization that he started. Um, and there was a designer whose name was Carolee Prince and I can't find any of her designs anywhere. And so as simple as me putting up a picture of her and saying, hey, does anyone know where the archive of her work is or people who right. own her work where we can create some type of archive around it um, because she created incredible designs during her time. Um, and so that's the type of work that I'm really, uh, really interested in doing. It's very multifaceted, very interdisciplinary, um, and there's a lot of work to be done too. And, and that's, yeah. what I, that's what really um, grounds me and humbles me sometimes because um, there isn't, you know, uh, this, this isn't prioritized in a lot of schools or in a lot of syllabi and a lot of archives. And so for me to be able to do kind of these, these projects or drop these little gems, even in the things that I published mm -hmm. and say, hey, you know, a, a simple line or a footnote or something that maybe someone can pick up. Right. And they do a project or they do a book or they do an exhibition or something on it. Um, it's very exciting because like to know, and it's very, um, it's very important to say like, hey, not only do I, not have the capacity to do all this work. I don't have to do all of this work right. because there are so many other people who can assist with this. And what does it look like for us to all bring our interests yes. and our skill set yes. and our identities together um, to really create something so necessary and well overdue? Yes. Oh my God, you were hitting so many notes um, there. I, I I just often even think about the the political world, right? Like when we think about traditional politics, we often feel very dis uh, like you know distance from that that type of work. Like we as a, I feel like as a collective, even talking about right now in this political climate, like we still are trying to figure out how to navigate these spaces, right? So that mm -hmm. to me is also in academia and in education, right? Like how do we have access to resources so that mm -hmm. we can do that work? And mm -hmm. um, I think mm -hmm. you you do you touch on that so well. Um, I was gonna say, um, what have you observed? I think you touched on it a little bit around um, the, the fatalities of 
of why the archive of fashion um, within the diaspora has been very hard to like do the work with alone. What would you, um, what do you see as the role hair plays, right? So when we talk about identity politics and from your observance of the work you've seen so far, how much of a role do you feel like hair plays um, in accessorizing, let's talk about runways? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you want to touch a little bit on that? Yeah, so specifically in runways, I think that hair um, becomes kind of this medium of signification, right? Um, mm -hmm. When people are creating their collections and they're thinking about the runway, you can think of it as a stage, right? Mm -hmm. So if you were going to see a play, the costumes matter, the right. hairstyles matter, the shoes matter. Um, mm -hmm. I remember I was in a play in undergrad and um, it was actually Fences and I played um, the little girl and there were these shoes backstage that actually never appeared to the audience, but mm -hmm. were a part of the script. Um, my mother kept telling me to go put on my, my good shoes and I was resistant to it. And the audience never sees the shoes, but they're back there. Um, and so I think of that moment in, in the same way that you kind of think of the fashion show is there all these things and all of it matters. Yes. All of it matters. But the difference, right, is there's a difference when, say, Comme des Garçons sends white models with cornrow wigs down the runway, like they did, uh, you know, with their menswear collection um, recently. And there's a difference when Pierre Moss sends a black model down the runway with right. cornrows, like they did um, in their last collection, right? And which is a consistency in their runway shows because black people are prioritized uh in pre in Pierre Moss in a way that they are not for Kondo right. And so the, those differences are definitely cultural and those differences are historical and there is a meaning behind those things. Mm -hmm. Right. With Pierre Moss for me and you as black women, it becomes different because we understand what Pierre Moss is trying to articulate to us. Exactly. Right. When we see it with Comme des Garçons, we are confused, right? Yeah. We are upset, we are irritated, because certainly if in your history of being a designer, you haven't prioritized Black people in general, and then you put cornrow wigs on white models, um, I don't believe that uh, you're... You, like, I, I just don't believe that you don't know what you're doing, you know? Right. And so those cornrow wigs are supposed to do something, right? And, and, right. and in history, in, in kind of what we understand culturally about the fashion industry and representation, those modes of signification when uh, it might be a little bit different now because the conversations are changing in the fashion industry. But um, we know that those cornrows has signified being ghetto or being mm -hmm. unkept or being uh, from a particular neighborhood or from a particular class um, right. level. Um, that is the way kind of it gets mobilized in those ways. And we as black people live with that history. We live with those moments in our bodies yes. in a very particular yes. way. 
I, I even think let's take it a step further. Like we we talk about you know even black models in the industry having um, experiences of not having hairstylists on mm -hmm. um, behind the, the scenes. You know, knowing mm -hmm. how to be equipped with black hair. I think that's yeah. also a problem. I see it with myself when I'm on, when I'm on sets. Like having and you know it's not necessarily black folks behind the scenes. It's like talking to the producers, talking to the people beforehand, like these are the things that I need. And, and you know, not everyone has that, you know, maybe that confidence or, or, or don't even feel equipped to do that. Like how do we communicate those needs if they're mm -hmm. not, if they're, if we don't see them um, existing, right? So mm -hmm. I think there's mm -hmm. so many levels to it. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you find like there's an issue around when we talk about African hairstyles? And I think you touched on it. We talked about Comme des Garcons within high fashion. Um, but then we, and then, you know, the term lowbrow. Um, what mm -hmm. do you think about that? I'm mm -hmm. curious. Yeah, so I think the issue there is really around language, right? And mm -hmm. the construction. It's about the construction of language um, and the act of labeling. Right. right. I think that's it because I, I don't think that um, I don't think that the desire or the ask is uh, by black people in particular is to be, cons you know, our hair or our style to be considered high class. Right. Mm -hmm. it's, our ask is to do not criminalize us, do not punish us, do not right. ostracize us right. when we wear our hair this way or when we style ourselves this way only for you years later or a season later or whatever it might be when it's convenient for you um, to not really celebrate it. You know, I think that right. sometimes, you know, people use the word celebrate, but it's not a celebration. It's what is convenient for you mm -hmm. during this time. And I mean, I think that we can like even, in, even trace that back to like when we think of urban wear, right? And when mm -hmm. we think of, um, I wrote about this in my master's thesis, when we think about brands like FUBU and Rockaware, so on and so forth, um, I think that FUBU is a bit different um, in that it wasn't started by uh, like a music artist right. uh, in particular. But when you look at kind of urban wear and its, its emergence, you know, and, it, and its popularity, and then its demise, and then when you look, um, when you align that with kind of how Tommy Hilfiger pivots during that time, right? He Ooh, pivots yes. to the styles, the way in which these urban wear brands were styling their models or right. uh, creating baggy jeans or, or whatever. And as soon as the demise of that genre happens, Tommy Hilfiger just pivots back. Right. To what it was originally. So that doing. convenience. Of, it's a convenience, know. right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't, I don't, you know, and maybe this is me being a bit snarky <laughs> or a bit pessimistic, but I don't think these moments are celebratory, right? right I think right. these moments are, you know, call it what it is. It was convenient for them um, to do. And I think you touched on, and, and I want to hear your thoughts on this because I was just having a conversation with someone around the, the Tommy Hilfiger and Zendaya collaboration that mm -hmm. happened uh, what are your thoughts on that I'm curious because I had my feelings about it very mixed um, um no pun intended on <laughs> like how you know he's used Zendaya as a, a means of kind of having again this and I'm going to call it what it is having still again being close enough to whiteness but still having some mm. access to blackness mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. she kind of fit that mold for me and you know 
when we talk about the complexities of again black people are not a monolith right i understand mm-hmm. that but i do still think there's this tr- this trend happening of um in the fashion industry like i'm not still seeing enough black women designers zendaya is not a designer so to me it's interesting to see someone like a designer like tommy hilfiger find a you know a personality or a celebrity to fit that you know definition or create this thing in, in, in fashion that feels like he's trying to to do something culturally but I'm, I'm just curious what are your thoughts on mm-hmm. that yeah I mean you know I would have to go back to that because mm-hmm. I remember it I also just did not pay that much attention to it <laughs> um because you know fashion week is also like busy and yes. so there's so much going on and because there are now black designers for us to pay attention to mm-hmm. my focus just goes there as yes. opposed to like whatever you know yes. that's just my focus now because it's it's more exciting it's just right. really like you know it it's more exciting it's what we've been waiting for and so now we have Pierre Moss. now we have christopher john rogers um, you know, we have these people that we can actually prioritize mm-hmm. our, um, our sites and our money and yeah. our interests. Yes. Yeah. And I know those yeah. are definitely honorable mentions. Um, we have Pierre Moss, Kirby, and, and Christopher, but I still am finding myself struggling as a Black woman who's trying to work within, mm-hmm. you know, this fashion industry. Mm-hmm. Where are the Black women absolutely i, I am absolutely. so you no, know and you're when absolutely talk about correct the you know the intersections of race and gender i'm still mm-hmm. seeing a huge gap there right like i said zendaya fits a pedestal that's very specific to a, for a mm-hmm. specific audience but when we're talking about again experiences of black women in the fashion industry i'm not i'm having right. a hard time grappling with that so my question is to you do you think there needs to be a focus on inclusivity in fashion education and do you think that will help create some awareness amongst industry industry professionals concerning mm-hmm. the importance mm-hmm. of hair as an accessory mm-hmm. but also just like the complications in the fashion industry as a whole like what are yeah what do you um, think yeah i mean i think fashion education is one one um one avenue right um but i mean also we have to really get we have to get real about the disparities within fashion education i mean education in general right and fashion education being a part of that right Mm -hmm. and knowing that um even if uh one are black students being accepted into fashion programs uh, when they are are they being provided with the resources they need to thrive Right. right. So are they applying for financial aid and only getting loans? Right. And so their whole economic future is a mess. You know, mm-hmm. are they being supported through not only scholarships, not only grants, but they have to buy materials. Mm-hmm. Is there a fund there for them to draw on for materials on and so forth? And so I think that fashion education is definitely territory that needs to be charted in cre- way more. Like way more, um, especially, I mean, during my time at Parsons, you know, being in conversation with people um, in financial services and, fi- and in financial aid as a black graduate student in a fashion program and them not really having the best system to address um, the socioeconomic differences among their student body. Right. Um, and specifically how it was affecting um, black, you know, how they were not prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, and how they were, in my opinion, failing black students. Yes. Um, it was, it was very, um, yeah, I, I, it was very disappointing 
for me mm-hmm. to learn that. I don't know what they're doing now. Um, but yeah, and I just, I imagine that that is something that's occurring across the board. Uh, right. Black students who have these desires, these dreams, these talents. Yeah. Um, and so my interest too now is how do we, beyond fashion education, everybody's not going to go to college. And right. that's fine. Yes. Because everyone yeah. is talented. And so how can mm-hmm. we actually start to create and foster opportunities um, for yeah. people who want can't go or don't don't have a desire to go mm-hmm. but are still are still extraordinarily talented mm-hmm. um how can we foster opportunities for those people who are like you know i don't want to go to new york right i don't want to go to london i don't want to go to paris i want to make make clothes right here in my hometown of chicago of mm-hmm. st louis of gary indiana right and how can we ensure that those people still have the support and resources they need to actually um foster their gifts and their talent um and so yeah fashion education is one way i just think that perhaps our conversation needs to be needs to balloon a bit more to hold space for the variety of ways that people learn for the variety of ways that people's talents and interests can be cultivated yeah, I feel like, you know, you touched on something really heavy for me because I was I was a product of that, right? Like I went to high school of fashion industries and as a high school student, very early on I got, you know, all the education that I needed in terms of fashion construction, but I I think senior year is when it hit me that this was not what I wanted to do. So mm-hmm. in those moments as young people, like where are the alternative and like right. institutions that could help me kind of formulate like what my choices are, what are, what are the options mm-hmm. out there for me, right? Mm-hmm. Like maybe college doesn't look like that for me. You know, at the end of the day, I went to Parsons. I ended up, I didn't go as a fashion design student. I ended up going in communication design and, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about media and, and, and fashion communications. So marketing, PR, branding, like that's where I found my avenue. But I feel like I I want pe- young people out there, especially our audience today, to to think a little bit more about what what are those alternatives and what are the other options out there. How does that look like? What does that look like online and offline? And mm-hmm. I really love that you have you know these two online platforms for them to really have access to, and and mm-hmm. that maybe be a step for them in thinking about what are the other avenues that they can take if it's not in specifically doing fashion design. Like, what does that yes. look like outside of that role? Because um, yeah. the reality is, is that you might not you know after discovering some things, you you might not want to pursue that. So mm-hmm. you don't want it to be a dead end for young people for anyone really just trying to figure it out um right. so I really feel like today's conversation was really important to yeah to and I'm actually things. yeah and I'm actually in conversation with two of my peers that I actually was uh we were all in we were part of the same cohort in mm-hmm. Parsons uh, fashion studies program and we work in different industries right and mm-hmm. our focus is still on fashion right so I'm in the academy um and I also do public speaking and public facing work Um, I have another peer who works in consulting with different Mm -hmm. fashion organizations and also emerging fashion designers and another friend who works um, at the executive level at a major Mm -hmm. fashion company. Right. And so now we're in conversation right now about um, how can we use our pool of resources and our network to literally create a web of a mentorship program and so what does it look like for me to use my connections and them to use their connections and put them in conversation which would again those people that I just mentioned people in Chicago and Gary Indiana and St. Louis Missouri and actually be able to have and especially now that 
so much is online. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it has to be online because of COVID-19, right? And so we yeah. have Zoom and, you know, we're doing all of these digital things. And so we're trying to think of ways like, okay, this, beca- this then becomes kind of um, a barrier, we hope a barrier breaking moment mm-hmm. where that person who wanted to take that internship at that magazine or at that fashion company who just couldn't afford to move to New York, you know, and work, if not work for free, then work for, you know, pennies on a dollar. Um, They can then just foster a network or foster um, a mentorship opportunity online um, and share their collections and and, and things online. Um, and so that's something that we're thinking about too, because we're just like something there, there is something that, um, basically, I mean, what the whole, you know, the world is saying right now, it's like <laughs> the, the way we have been going is not working. Exactly. Right? We cannot just, you know, diversifying the student body in a major fashion school, we can hope, we, we can only hope we'll diversify the industry, but mm-hmm. we can't depend on only that. Right. Right. And we also can't knock down the people who really say, you know, there are a lot of causes to get behind. There are a mm-hmm. lot of uh, uh, career opportunities. There are a lot of things that people want to do. If a person wants to be a fashion designer, they should be able to be a fashion designer and they should be supported in doing so, you know. Right. Um, and so that's just what we're trying to we're trying to figure out the mechanics of that um, right now. And we hope that people really come on board and support mm-hmm. the initiative. Yeah, no, that's 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 huge, and I definitely honor all the work you guys are doing. So that's re- pretty special. Um, I actually have piloted um, Mahogany's first uh, apprenticeship program this past spring, po- before we knew it was going to be Corona. Yeah. Um, but you know, we managed, and it was definitely trying for me also, like learning what it felt like to be in a leadership role and to you know mentor mm-hmm. these young young women into these mm-hmm. different aspects of the business in terms of fashion entrepreneurship and so um it definitely was something that was a challenge for me and i think that the 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 beautiful part is is that we all got to grow and we also got to think of alternatives outside of what is the norm or what quote unquote what we felt was the norm in doing this and we had to really adapt and and pivot um so Mm -hmm. i definitely think you know you guys are pivoting and doing that work and i i i really just honor that so thank you so much much. (laughs) thank you so much ricky for you know giving me your time today um how can the community stay connected with you online yeah uh i'm at ricky bird that's my sister (laughs) i'm at ricky I'm at Ricky Bird, R-I-K-K-I-B-Y-R-D on Instagram and Twitter. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only thing that I'm on. Um, and at Black Fashion Archive on Instagram is the page that I manage. And thank you so much for having me and inviting no, me to be a part of this podcast. Of course. I'm very excited. <laughs> yes, me too. Um, I, I look forward to, you know, everyone getting to, you know, listen to these fruitful conversations. I think t- the time is now and... Again, I appreciate you and everything that you do. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. You have a good rest of your week, okay? You too. All right, everyone. I'll talk to you guys in the next episode. See you then. Bye-bye.